What's up, everyone? Welcome to the show. My name is Tom McCaffrey. I'm here with Eric B. L-E-2-B. Last exit to Brooklyn. Uh, we have a big show today. Very Huge exciting. show. Yeah. Huge show. Biggest uh, show going... ever. Yeah, we have... Uh... Well, well, we'll wait for... We have a special guest, hopefully. We have a special guest. Um, but we'll talk a little bit before she gets here. Um but your voice, uh, your, your voice sounds uh, higher. It sounds higher. Yeah, because you don't have a microphone. Oh, does it sound bad? Oh, just okay. I just wanted uh, for, your, for the listeners who know we had some uh, technical. Uh, so you're going to go acapella? You're going to raw dog it? I guess so, but uh, I'm just using the the speaker in my computer. I have to buy a new speaker. My yeah. old one crapped out. Um, so. Um, yeah, but so before she comes on, uh, I watched uh, the um, the brand new documentary that came out about Woodstock '99. Yeah, that's actually why that song that I just played up top is a Beck song. You know, did you know that song? Yeah, but, but, yeah. Was he at Woodstock '94? No, I, I don't even know. I, I definitely wasn't at Woodstock '99. But I was going to originally play one of those artists who were like. But they all suck. So I wasn't going to give Kid Rock a fucking shout out, you know? Yeah. Even though, I, even though I liked that album at the time. Yeah, that, that documentary is really interesting because I feel like that was one of the main takeaways was like in 1999, music was just sort of all over the place. So there was no focus. Like music was kind of shitty at that. It was a really bad transition. Like that's when boy bands started to become big and like it was yeah. boy bands and like white hip hop guys who are like quasi metal, new metal, I guess they call it. I don't even know if what they called it, but they were all like, you know, it was all high testosterone fucking run around with, with your shirt off, you know, kind of music. So it's kind of weird how in that documentary, they kind of, they play a clip from fight club and fight club really captured that, that time perfectly where yeah. the whole, um, white man which is it kind of all came to a head at woodstock 99 where like it was all these kind of young white angry men who had all this angst but didn't really have an outlet for it i guess is that kind of what it was like because they say that in fight club like you know we we're the middle children of history this you know like we have no great war you know we have no meaning to our lives so it's kind of like that's what woodstock 99 represented almost like yeah, but it was a, probably just a bunch of really kind of spoiled, privileged white kids who were fucking angry for no reason, you know. But you figure all those guys twenty years ago, they I thought you, they were they're probably at MAGA rallies now. They all grew up in what became MAGAs. You That's know? all I could think of is that yeah, yeah those they're all because they're kind of the age now because they're all right. like twenty three, twenty four then. So now they're all like in their mid forties and still angry. Yeah, I mean, if they were angry back then, I could tell you I wasn't really angry back then. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were sort of the age, like we were kind of the demographic for Woodstock 99. I mean, I was like 26 when it happened. So I should have been, I had no interest in going to that shit. Like not even. Well, yeah. Cause I did the whole, I remember I like, I don't want to like, yeah, you just sit around and you don't shower for days that they lost me right there. I'm like, I'm not doing that. You know, I never understood those music festivals. Yeah. They always looked like shit to me. Just 
being around. I mean, and when you watch that documentary, it just looks so awful and really dangerous where it's just like 600,000 people all cramped together. It's like, just looks, yeah. I'm amazed more people didn't die. Um, yeah. Well, that, the documentary taught me a few things. I, I knew that bad things happened, but I didn't know about like all the rapes and stuff. I didn't, I didn't know about that stuff. It yeah. Kinda, and it, it really makes sense. All that rape culture stuff they're always talking about. I feel like they kind of like, that was kind of its heyday. It's uh it's a big, big, uh, I don't know, like the, the turning point or I don't know, kind of at its peak. Cause those girls got wild videos. I mean, they yeah. were like, a, I do remember even then when they would show ads for girls got wild videos, I was blown away that they were showing this on yeah. TV. I was like, what? And they completely manipulated those girls. I mean, they got up to like sign releases and shit, you know, and they're drunk. So like, yeah. um, but I do remember thinking that back then, you know, in my mid twenties, like I'd see these girls got wild ads on TV with like these chicks taking, and I was like, "They're advertising this on TV." Like this was a thing that you know, when I was younger, it, it wasn't in the forefront of culture. It was like you found it in a magazine, right? And didn't tell anyone. Now it's like being advertised on TV. I it, like that felt really just like gross to me. I remember like that they were, I couldn't believe that they were allowed to do it. And I remember being like, this is bad. This is not a good. Yeah. I remember there was, there was a funny Saturday Night Live sketch where it was like, I think it was Kate Hudson was in it or something. And this family was watching TV with their teenage daughter. And then there was an ad for uh, girls gone wild. And she's in the ad. She, they see Kate Hudson in there doing all this shit. And then, yeah, and I remember then, that. Yeah, and then later on, I think the button was also the mom is in the videos also. <laughs> and then the dad? I think maybe the dad, yes. <laughs> well, I remember like in 2003 or 2002, I was like hanging out with some comedians and I think we had met some young girls at a comedy show and we were hanging out with them. I think they were visiting from out of town and we were in their hotel room and they were probably like early 20s and a Girls Gone Wild commercial came on and they were like, glued to the screen like i think they were almost like oh i know so and so who's in this like they were almost um it was like they aspired to it you know what i mean like mm-hmm. this wasn't looked down upon as exploitive it was like even young girls yeah. were into it and i was like wow that's really that seems really weird to me all right i don't want to make our guests wait so i'm gonna let our guest in but we can talk for a second more um Okay. Is she, is she here? She will be in a second. Your amazing guest on the. There she is. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going? Um, Who's this say... guy? Who's this sherm? <laughs> I don't know if Uh-oh. you know Tom McCaffrey. He's been Hi. a comedian for a while. Oh, He's a funny dude. Hi, Hi how are you? Nice to meet you. I'm a big fan. Yeah, like you better be at least pretend you are for today. <laughs> I, I'm actually very. I'm a little intimidated because uh, I don't. I don't want to go up against the queen of mean. So. I, I, I know. Try not to, and I won't. Eric knows I'm off stage. I'm the nicest person really is. I ever met. All right. Well, let's let's give the proper introduction. Uh, this is an iconic comedian. We are very very lucky to have her. Uh, been all over everything. I can't even go through your IMDb. It's just too amazing. Um, but I want to plug your podcast, Losers with a Dream. I've listened to it. Know those guys are really good. Let's give it up for Lisa Lampanelli, everybody. 
We have a studio audience. Don't you love how I'm so untrusting that people will clap for me that I clap for myself? (laughs) Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to DMR, Dewey's Movie Reviews, an Australian-based podcast reviewing all the latest and greatest movies out there, all of the newest series on streaming platforms, an interview here and there, and of course, all the celebrity goss as well. So if you're looking for a high-quality movie and series review podcast, look no further than DMR Dewey's Movie Reviews, The Red Carpet Treatment. So how you been? I saw you the other night. It was great to see you. You look great. Well, you know, listen, I'm a great beauty. But the thing, what I love, I was just saying to my friend, my friend's like, whose podcast are you doing? I go, this guy, Eric, who was always very supportive and nice to me when we started in the city. And it was, I was dying. I had gone in to see, to, what, what club was that? Greenwich Village Broadway yeah. or something? Greenwich Comedy Club, yeah. I don't think you you were doing comedy in, in clubs that when that came came around. Right. So what happened was my buddy, Nick, I do a podcast called Losers with a Dream that Nick and Bo. And I went in to support Nick and to watch his set because I love, there's nothing I like better than criticizing straight male people. <laughs> so especially white ones. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. Um, and then you go up and I'm like, Eric, yeah. like, we were legit friends. Yeah. And I just loved seeing you. I go, I cannot believe I actually bumped into an actual friend. So that was a real treat for me. Yeah. Did, did you guys so, start around the same time in no, New York? She, no, she started before me, but I, she took me under her wing a little bit, I think. Yeah, we would go around to the different clubs. And I remember the best memory I have of you is you and another comic, a female comic, were with me the night I passed at the comic strip strip. And back then the comic strip was the club to work mm-hmm. because it was a guy who ran it called Lucian hold, who was really tough, really tougher than the people at the cellar ever could imagine being like, you had to defend every joke. You had to be able to really work hard to get into that club and pass that audition. And the fact that some douche Lisa Lampanelli barrels away in convinces the guy that I should work there because I'm quote the female Frank Sinatra I can't believe I've had the balls to say that to him Eric you were there that night and we Mm -hmm. celebrated across the street at the bagel place oh yeah you were there for one of my biggest moments in beginning to make it wow I think how many had you auditioned for the comic strip a few times before you passed I got really lucky because what happened was I was smart enough to not come into the city to do comedy till I was pretty good. I knew, Mm -hmm. I knew, I knew when I'd be ready. So for five years, I sort of honed being good on the road a little bit. And yeah, no, I didn't come in with headliner quality yet, but I knew I was good. I didn't want anyone to look at me like an open micer. So when I came on the scene, I was like, they were like, Whoa, who's this? She's crazy. She's good. And I was like, I don't know. I just kind of like showed up this way. So I was lucky enough that I knew some of the guys who worked the strip and I was put up not in the audition for the underlings. I was put right in front of Lucian and I just knew my arguments like, dude, they said, whatever he says, negative turn into a positive. It was insane. Like he said things like, um, 
I see here that you do blue asides. And I'm like, I know, isn't it great? Like I literally was just like turning every, and he looked confused. And then he's like, oh, why should I use you at this club? It's the premier club in the country. And I go, I don't know, but you should, because when people come to see me, they come back. Mm-hmm, I am the female Frank Sinatra. And he, for years, said, I cannot believe she had the balls to say that sentence. I have to use her. Like, it was crazy. So you did some, like, Jedi mind uh, stuff on it. I feel I did. Also, I was, like, inarguably just humorous. And I think also he just really liked that I stuck to, that I thought I was really good. Like, at that time, you have such a big ego that you're just like, I should definitely work here. I'm not going to faint. Like, there was, Lucian was famous for literally making auditioners faint. Really? So upset and scared to go in. He'd go, I'll see you now, Tom McCafferty. And Tom McCafferty would faint. You know, it was hilarious stories about this guy. So he was very formidable. But I was like, well, I'm like 35, 40. I kind of know what I'm doing. So so did you, you got into it late stand up? Yeah, I started when I was 30. So I sort of honed it outside the city for like five-ish years. And then I was like, oh, let me do a little foray into the city and pretend I live here, even though I don't. Had you thought about doing it for years before that? Or what What, what happened that you started later? Yeah, I think it was always in the back of my mind, but so far back. Like, it's just something you didn't do. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up, I graduated college, 1983. I graduated with a degree in journalism from Syracuse. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a journalist. Oh, I'm going to like be an editor. I'm going to write profiles of rock bands, whatever I wanted to do. So I did that for a while. And I remember going in to Rolling Stone. I worked at Rolling Stone. I remember I went into this guy and he was a big Yenta named Steve Futterman. And he was so funny. He was a researcher, like head researcher. So I went to him one day and go, Steve, I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm going to be a great writer. I'm good, but I don't know. I go, Anna, do you think I should try stand up? You're really funny. And he goes, oh, absolutely not. He goes, all they care about is the spotlight. They want all the attention. They are self-centered. I go, sounds perfect for me. Because legitimately to this day, as you can already tell, there is nothing better to me than talking about myself. Yeah. I am fucking fascinating well i just want to say one thing also because all that passing clubs that you deserved it like you know, right now i don't you ever hear the term beast when they talk about a comic that's oh. comic is a beast yeah and they throw that word around so much and to people who don't deserve it like I, i'm not going to name names or anything like that but like you were legitimately a beast i would see like fucking people rolling on the like physically having reactions to your comedy rolling on the floor or whatever. Yeah. And there's not a lot of guys like that anymore, you know, or girls, you know? No, and I think a lot of the guys were intimidated. I was always more of like a male vibe than female. So, which probably is one of the reasons I never got me too, because I was so freaking tough. Mm-hmm. And also just, you know, the puss wasn't very good anyway, but I remember when I started dating my uh, ex-husband, Jimmy big balls, Jim Brewer had said, oh, my God, Jim, she's a monster. And I would love that. I love monster and beast and like all that crazy stuff. And it was just good to be known as a guy that uh, as a chick, the guys didn't want to follow. And I took it as a compliment. I loved that. I was going to say, so did you have a rep of like ruining crowds for people? No, like, no, were no, you? No. I think I mean, the pussies like who 
couldn't follow, I'd always go, yeah, mm-hmm. you want to switch? I'll go last. Like I had a couple of guys who like, I remember working with this comic at Pips in Brooklyn when Pips was a big deal when Dice was around or after Dice's era. But, and this guy was complaining because at the time I was great, but I it was just a feature act. I wasn't a headliner yet. And he complained to me, he goes, you know, I shouldn't have to follow that. I go, then don't. I go, want to switch? Like, I didn't give a fuck because I always thought it's better to follow somebody really good. Like, I used to at the cellar have to follow Chappelle all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's Jesus. how you get good. You don't be like a little bitch. Yeah, so exactly. I, and I it, loved it. Yeah. And I think back then, too, I mean, comedy was definitely more of a boys' club. Yeah. I think it's better now, but I mean, when you were really coming up, I think if you were a female comic, it was not easy, you know? No, I don't think I, it is I, now, I, but I actually, it never dawned on me that it was hard until last summer when I was dry. Cause I'd always been in interviews going, Hey man, it was easier for me because I'm the only female who's funny. Cause Joan Rivers was out of the picture by that point for the most part. She wasn't, you know, anywhere around except, you know, Vegas and this and that. I was like, there's nobody. I go, I'm the fucking most baddest bitch. I go, of course they're going to notice me. It was easier for me. And then I listened to um, Nikki Glaser turned me on to Taylor Swift. So I was listening to this song called The Man. Mm-hmm. And it's how it would have been easier if I was the man. And I'm sitting in my car and I'm so full of emotions that I stuffed down through the 30 years of comedy that I'm like sobbing at this song. That's not even sad. I go, okay, what's going on? So I start noticing like, the words are like, oh my God, it was so hard because everyone was so mean to me. Mm-hmm. All the guys were mean to me. There was maybe one nice guy out of all of them. And I'm like, oh, this was hard. And again, you're stuffing your feelings with food. You're stuffing your feelings with dating. You're stuffing your feelings with comedy. And it's like, oh, now they're allowed to come out. But yeah, it was tough. Can I yeah, ask I- you, when did your, I'm sorry, when did, when did that uh, persona and act come about like when you started did you have that or did that take a while no i always go you never end up where you start so we just i had taken a little comedy class when i was 30 from this guy like you know this guy um in connecticut just how to put together five minutes no one could teach you how to be funny but who knows how to get up and write five minutes or what you're supposed to put in so it was all these great writing exercises so i was like okay so i got my five minutes and it was just regular comedy but i did notice I still have the VHS tape that there were two guys during an ad lib. I was shocked. I did an ad lib the first time. I don't know how that happened, but they high fived at that. Oh, okay. So I started noticing and I go every time I would listen to like at the time you had cassette tapes in the car. Every time I'd listen to a set, I'd only be laughing out loud at my stuff. If it was crowd work and you know, ad libs and stuff. And I go, Oh, I, I need to do more of that. So then I aired on the side of too much of that. And then it eventually came back to the middle of insult comic book with material. So right. the roast started happening and all that. So it was a good combination, but it does evolve. I think what happens is it does evolve. And then the last few years of my, before I retired, the last few years were, I would say 30% insults, 70% about me and stories and divorce and whatever and food stuff. And that was really fun. Cause you got to experiment more like, Oh, what people still like me, even if it's not telling them they're a cunt. Yeah. I think, but that's all the way comedy was going. Everyone was like, you know, you need to get personal. And they were, and, and then comics started doing that. Everyone was. And I think that was a good thing. Well, I, I don't think yeah. I even heard that message because yeah. having left, once I became a theater comic instead of a city comic and a, 
club comic. I never watched comedy on TV. I didn't follow any comics on Instagram. Like it felt like homework. I never yeah. watched any comedy specials. So I didn't know what people were saying you should do. It just in my heart felt like, oh, this is interesting about mm. this weight loss surgery, or this is interesting about the divorce from the guy that I went on Stern with or whatever. Right. So I just kind of did what was in my heart and I liked it a lot. So did yeah. you find your voice pretty fast? Like when the first like, few years i think so only because i started when i was 30 if i had started when i was 15 or 20 or 25 i would have been more flailing like i have a niece who has a very very big podcast like enormous and i notice in her first couple episodes her and her partner are like they're fine but their voice isn't like it should be mm-hmm. so it took like two years where now i'm like listening to episode like 300 i'm like oh that's her is, so is your is your niece Joe Rogan? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I just want to get back to the female comedy thing for a second, because I really do think you're a trailblazer because I the years ago, a female on the show was like a novelty. There would only usually be like one, you yeah. know, and you could always, you know, as a guy, you wouldn't even think about their experiences now because I, I run shows sometimes mm-hmm. and you got to put oh, really at least half the way I run shows because the audiences are female, a lot of them, and they want to see female comics. They don't want to see a and white guys. Not that well, that's not a good. Well, the thing is back years ago, I always said I was glad men, especially straight men liked my comedy. And I did comedy that appealed to straight guys. And I was like the only woman comic who a straight guy wouldn't be ashamed of going to see like yeah. no offense to any of these people I would name, but like a straight guy is not going to go, can't wait to see Elaine Boozler. Can't yeah. wait to see Rita Rudner. I mean, please. Or Joan Rivers was very gay, more gay audience. But like, I was like, good. Men have the money. Men are buying the tickets. Men make mm. the decisions. Like 20 years ago, that was definitely the truth. Hey, come on, bitch. You're coming on the date with me. <laughs> now, a lot more women are making some decisions and stuff. Not that that's a good thing, because they should really just stay at home and be pregnant. <laughs> That being said, let the bitches have what they want. It's still men who rule. Thank you. Can I ask you, so what was, I know you talked about getting past at the strip. I mean, obviously that's a big break, especially when you're just kind of trying to break it. And I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but back then the strip was the seller, basically. It was, but more so even because there was, it wasn't tons of cable yet. So that was where Letterman, you know, at the time, you know, Tonight Show, this one, that one. I mean, they were only going to the strip. So I had a fight, by the way, that first time Lucian passed me. He goes, well, you work here on the weekends because you obviously they love you. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to fucking work weekends. I don't need the money. I need the fucking Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from those Letterman's assholes are coming. So luckily, I'm the type that I'm persistent and you call in your avails. Like in the old days, you'd call and go, oh, I'm available Tuesday, eight to midnight or whatever. Did you have any, like, did you experience stage fright at all at any point early I on? So, and again, I think that's only because I started when I was ready. I cannot stress to people enough. I'm okay. I'm not a procrastinator. So never like fear of success. Oh my God. It keeps me stuck. Don't do it till you're ready for whatever comes your way. In other words, 
you should be able to go up there. Yeah, you'll have a little butterfly or whatever and go, ooh, that'll be fun. I can't wait. Like, I loved that Lucian at the strip would always be like, oh, this audience is abysmal. Lampanelli, go ahead and wake them up. You know, so I loved being that kind of badass. But like, because I was yeah. not kind of the Johnny Lawrence of uh, the comic strip. Like, <laughs> kick, send me in. I will kick Ralph Macchio's ass. So anyway, <laughs> I was like, all right, Cobra Kai, my favorite. Anyway, uh, no, I, I did think that I if I hadn't waited till I was ready and grounded enough to take whatever came my way, I would have been just a mess. But I mean, I was asking for trouble. I'd say some shit. Like, I mean, I got into fights. I got in, not physically, obviously, because I'm a pussy, but like, man, I got in some arguments and like people storming out occasionally, which was very rare, um, which was shocking. And Doug Stanhope had said to me once, because we did Vegas together once, and he's like, how do you not have walkouts? I mean, you're calling them every fucking word. And I say one thing and I'm like, because I'm lovable and you're fucking a disgusting human. And we're <laughs> friends, so that's why I can say that. What was, was a, your first? I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I almost thought, in a way, I mean, it was definitely you're doing you up there, but it, it was also slightly a character, I think, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I feel like you know, Dice had that too, and I feel like sometimes people didn't understand that. I'm like, it's you're playing a heightened version of yourself, but it's sort of a character a little bit, right? Well, what it is is, I think what I always felt like as I took like 10 percent of my personality. That was the 10% on stage. The other 90% is the one who has the feelings and who cries and who has the connection to animals and all that shit. You're not going to put that on stage. That's faggy. No, so back then you would say that. But so I would put the 10% that I felt would really be cute and funny. And it's almost like it reminds me a lot of Rickles too, because they would say, well, how do you get away with it? But so-and-so can't. And I'm like, because we don't mean it. And we have warmth. And when Johnny Carson called Rickles, Mr. Warmth, there has never been a better. Um, he didn't mean it to be so accurate, but it was because he was a warm guy and you, he could call you anything. And I still get emails and uh, Instagram like messages from people who are like, Oh my God, you called me and my friends dot, dot, dot. Thank you. It helped me accept my gayness or whatever. And I'm like, right. Holy shit. So <laughs> So is that based? I think that probably was a big part of it. I don't, you, and I don't, were you aware of it? Where like the fact that like people appreciated someone who just had would just say whatever was on their mind. There was no phoniness to it, and that I think it was more that you could say it if you were a warm person who they sensed goodness from. Like if somebody gets up there and they're like fucking evil, they could say the most benign little jokes, and you'd go, "There's something off about that one." <laughs> well, isn't that funny too? It seems like that's a lot with a lot of comedians. Like the really nice ones on stage are the worst people in the world, Hard. like Cosby. And then the really mean ones with the mean persona are like you and like Jezelneck. Like Jezelneck was always like Best. the nicest guy off stage. Best. Best ever. And by the way, that applies in all of life. The guy who's the same, my mother used to call it um, street angel house devil. <laughs> it's always the guy who's out there politicking for women's rights, who's raping everybody, you know, who's jerking off in front of you. So, I mean, yeah, it's really, it's an interesting thing because actually Bob Newhart is very famous. Him and Rickles were best friends. They always mm -hmm. traveled together with their families. They did vacations for like 50 years. And he'd always say, they'd always go, Hey, Rickles is so nice. And he goes, yeah, I'm the asshole. 
And he goes, and, and kind of that's cool because Bob Newhart had the nicest stage persona ever. And I'm sure he's not an asshole, but Rickles had that little thing where you just go, oh, because I've met him a few times and mm-hmm. like he legit remembered me. Like that's a legend. Why is he remembering me? Because he's a warm guy. Mm. So yeah, I, I love that about did him. You, did you ever meet Cosby or no? No. And I'm kind of glad because I would have fallen for a roofie in a minute. <laughs> no, I never met. I always suspected him. One of what's weird. My father was like that too. My father always would look at Cosby when we would watch it in the eighties before anything was on. My father's go, uh, I don't know. There's something off about him. Wow. The same. Guess what else? My father goes up when we would watch Rosie O'Donnell's talk show. My father would go, huh? She's hiding something. Like it was really fucking weird because my father was very nice guy, simple guy, very humble painter. He was just a good guy. And I'm like, yeah, you can always sense the fucking, the, there's a scoundrelly nature about certain people. Yeah. I mean, you, also, and also with, with Ellen DeGeneres, um, have you ever met her? Just, no, I actually was just in the audience for one of her shows. Like I took my parents there when we were in LA and, um, I never quite bought in. I loved that she was brave enough to come out. Mm-hmm. It was after that that I kind of go, not interested. Not in-. So I didn't know much about her, but let's just put it this way. Whatever they say about her now wouldn't surprise me because I did hear this thing where she kept giving dogs back. Like she kept adopting them and giving uh, them back when they weren't behaving. And I'm like, okay, you're just, that's a dick move unto its own. So yeah, we don't need that. But she's not a rapist though. Not rapey, but maybe <laughs> if we can only hope. <laughs> so what was your, so was, were the roasts kind of the big, the thing that kind of broke you to the next level? Um, yeah. What had happened was the exact order was, so I start doing comedy in the city. Um, somebody brings me to the Friars Club and I just start doing little shows there, you know, just cause they'd like me. I had that attitude of like, yeah, I'm one of the boys, you know, and a badass and like insulting. They love the insults. So they decide Comedy Central is going to roast Chevy Chase. And at the time, the Friars Club was a co-producer. So they go, well, we have a, one demand. We want this girl on Lee Slamp. And they're like, no, we don't know her. And they're like, well, you're putting her on because we're a producer. So I just knew that was my shot. And I was like, okay, I have to kill. So yeah. I only had two weeks to prepare. I mean, thank God now you get six to four to six weeks because it's hard as fuck. And I knew I would put, be put on really late. So I had to be over-prepared as usual. Like I have 16 pages versus six. So I said, okay, so let me do this. And thank God that was, I, everyone was bombing. And I was like, I can't be distracted by the fact that everybody's sucking wind. And I thank God did really well. And during the broadcast, they moved me up from spot 13 to three. I was going to say, because I remember uh, you being early in the show. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, I mean, I'm watching it. I don't know anything about how you should know this in advance. And I'm, I'm just watching it at home going, oh, my God. So I think I'm going to be famous immediately. Of course, I'm not. But what it did was propel me to have the nerve to finally contact the Stern show. And again, I said, I know when I'll be ready for Stern because I'll have something interesting to talk about. So I said, let me go on and read to him all the roast jokes they cut out, plus tell him what a dick Chevy was, because at the time they hated each other. Right. Oh, right. When I was ready for Stern, but the time, and then I started doing the roasts and a lot of Tonight shows, 
But when I actually became a ticket, like a draw, was the Pam Anderson roast because everybody cool watched it. And no, I said to my manager, I go, but I was on the Foxworthy roast and that had better ratings. She goes, everybody watched the Foxworthy roast, but they don't go to clubs. Everyone cool watched the Pam Anderson roast and they buy tickets. And then it was just theaters after that. Cause I show up at the Sacramento punchline and they're like, Oh, we're sold out. Can we add a third show Saturday and a second show Sunday? I go, why? Who am I playing with? And they go, no, 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 the roast was on. I'm like, fuck. So that was like, okay, next level. Thank God. Can I ask you about Chevy real quick? So did, did you, did you interact with him? <laughs> what a fucking douche. That's another one who people and hate. Again, you say to yourself, I can't let this guy ruin my shot. It's like, if you're in an audition for a movie or TV show and the casting director's reading with you and they're awful, you go, I cannot let this ruin it for me. And he just, the whole time, if you watch that, they never rerun it because it's fucking terrible. He has sunglasses on the whole time. Which I won't even sit and have lunch with a friend if they have sunglasses. I go, let's reschedule for when it's raining because you're a dick now. <laughs> like, I need to see your eyes, you know? And so I go, he's not laughing and everything. So be freaking prepared for him not to give you anything. And I got a couple tiny smiles out of him, but I didn't let it affect me. I barreled through. I said, oh my God, at least you're getting a standing. Oh, you don't care. You don't care about him. He already has a career. You need one. And thank, I don't know what happened, but it all just melded that it worked out. Well, I do remember, do you, I remember when watching it, what I noticed, I don't know how this, but like, when you were done and you went over to shake his hand, he wouldn't look over at you. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love oh, to know something interesting about that. I'm an introvert at heart. I don't like to go out a lot. I hate parties. I don't like small talk, but I had gone to the party after. Cause I thought, Oh, it's my first TV thing. That's cute. And uh, Paul Schaefer, who I became friendly with, not friends, but friendly had said, Lisa, you're the only one Chevy liked. And I'm like, you're kidding. He didn't laugh. He goes, Oh no, no, no. He thought you were awesome. Because you didn't talk about drugs, you didn't talk about any of the easy stuff. Ooh. And I said, Oh, that's him showing he likes me. And I was like, Well, that's cool then. But Chevy was, there was a huge couple articles about the roast and how he said it was literally the worst night of his life because he realized how he'd fucked up his whole career and personal life by not being nice. So I thought that was really cool. Oh, well, I mean, so that I don't feel that he was the worst person then. You know, right. It's like he was the worst person I ever roasted because he didn't show anything to you. He didn't give you anything. But uh, because everybody else, I mean, come on, like Flavor Flav left at everything. Yeah. Like, jokes that guys did that were so lazy and stupid. That's an easy, that, he's probably an easy one to roast Flavor Flav, right? Everybody thinks it's easy. I think those are the hardest people because when you get to where you're going last, all the obvious jokes are taken. Oh, yeah. And then, I, like, oh, fuck. I, I got to write stuff about the girls on Flavor of Love. You know, like, you got to <laughs> really reach. I remember one of my favorite lines from that was um, when you talked about Brigitte Nielsen and you said um, she was as funny as she is relevant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of the lines, I literally, like, that's why I named the podcast Losers with a Dream because I used to go like this. I used to go, you know, I'd make fun of all the dais. I almost viewed it as my job to get them all back for being mean to the subject and go, but enough about these losers with the dream. Let's talk about Chevy Chase or whatever. So I always love that because I did feel like for the most part, if you're on the dais, you're a loser 
because you're not that famous yet, mm-hmm. or you're somebody on the way down. So you're, <laughs> but you do have a dream of making a comeback. So I always love that. And I always love going, but enough about these wastes of skin. Let's, you know, I always, those little turns I always enjoy. I, I, I also remember one of, the, one of the funniest moments from, I think it was the Trump one was. Were you on the Trump w- one? Yep. Oh, okay. I didn't know. And I, I think this is why it was so funny is it was Jezelnik's first time and yes. he goes, um, Lisa Lampanelli, you're cool. Like Did he I, didn't. Do you want to tell me, want me to tell you how that happened? You were Yes, gonna, please. Because it was because you were always the target and he didn't say anything. Well, like, this uh, was what was so great. Okay. So at the roast, the only feelings that ever got hurt on my part were when guys were lazy and just wrote dumb jokes, like put some effort in. Like, I love jokes about me if they're really funny. So I don't know who this Jeselnik is. I don't watch comedy. I hadn't done a roast in like three years. I go, who's this guy? So we look him up and, oh, he's mean. Mm. And I said, oh, no, I got to hit him really hard. I go, but he's going to be so mean to me. But I can see on the teleprompter if my name's coming up so I know when to laugh. So I know to present well, even if it hurts. <laughs> so- Cause then you get more stage time, you know, mm. you get more viewers. They know who you are and they say, what a good sport. Well, this Jeselnik, I hit really hard. And then he gets up and I am really scared and I'm like, okay, it's going to hurt, but that's okay. You just called Whitney Cummings, like Vinnie Vincent or something like that. I mean, you're not being nice yourself. Mm. So I'm like, okay. And he goes, Lisa Lampanelli. And then he just goes, you're cool. And then <laughs> moved on. And I, I think tears almost sprang to my eyes. Like I was so relieved. And I asked him after, I go, why did you, I go, thank you. I go, well, why did you do that? He goes, I don't know. You're just really funny. And I just, I really respect you. And I was like, holy shit. Wow. I viewed that as a gift. I was like, that was like, <laughs> I, going, here's a free pass. I just thought it was so funny. Cause you, you it was such the expected thing that he was going to go right after you. And then he did that. It was, um, great i thought it was one of the funniest moments me too i loved it i was like and he then had a show on comedy central that he asked me to do that was so much fun and i was like wow the people you don't even know like you like you mm-hmm. you know it's very cool so with trump though you did that he must have liked you right didn't you do the celebrity apprentice was that yeah, yeah right after that? that yeah what happened was we had roasted him no one will ever see it because you have to be a friars club member to even get the tape out there's a closed door roast we did of him, this 1500 seat ballroom, the, the charity roast that they do. So I did that and I hit him really hard, but I was dressed as a nun because they were like, do a character where you say how bad he is at sex and you're Jewish, but that's why you turned into a nun because he was so bad in the sack. So it was a way of doing a really bunch of really horrendous Trump jokes without him getting mad because he's such a fucking baby. Mm-hmm. So then when they said Comedy Central, I said, I don't want to do no more roast. And they go, okay, we'll give you this much money and we'll let you go first. I'm like, oh, first is the yeah. best spot ever. So I say, yeah, sure. So I do it. He loves it. That's one thing I think is shocking. He went from having the best sense of humor about himself to not being able to take a joke at all. So he's just so fucking mentally ill. Anyway, right after the roast, they call me and they want a meeting about me doing Celebrity Apprentice. And I'm like, yes, that looks like so much fun. And it's literally the worst (laughs) of your life because it's so hard. Like it's more work than you would dream. 
And I was so fucking bummed the whole time because I was just screaming at everybody and just trying to stay on. And thank God I stayed on to the end. But yeah, he liked me. And then I even did some charity stuff before he was, you know, even thinking about being president. I fucking did St. Jude's Children's Hospital for those guys. I mean, how are you going to say no to fucking kids with cancer? (laughs) But then this whole other thing started. I said, oh, I got to step away. This is crazy. Well, can I ask, why did you not want to do the rows? Why did you not want to do them? I was over rows. I was like, yeah, she had done a lot. I was like, oh, God, I've done like 15. Like, it's not fun anymore. But then when they hit you with a good sum of money and you can go first and they'll pay for like everything and give you a really nice Gucci bag or something as a (laughs) gift and a thank you. And there's guys like the situation and people who are just plain old dumb. You're just like, oh, this is going to be fun. So I, I think, and and then, you know, I had a nephew at the time who was dying to go to a roast. He was yeah. the right age to actually show up. So I got to be a big shot to my nephew. So there's several things that like worked its way into why I said, yeah. You know, I knew, knew a couple of people who worked on that roast writers. And you probably heard the story too, that the one thing that he always was sensitive about is you couldn't say that he was poor. Yep. Um, so you, yeah, can we, you speak there to was always other than... Who was it? Hasselhoff. There was nothing was off limits. It was and flavor flame. Nothing was off limits. Trump had a rule. Shatner had a rule. Pam had a rule. I understand why Pam Anderson's rule was there, but <laughs> there was always something you couldn't make fun of, which I think is their right. I think that's fine. Like even what was, my, even what my was Pam Anderson's rule? Was it the hepatitis? Yeah. Which, by the way, oh. I had written a great joke about, but I'm like, why would I even do it on Stage, it's going to get cut out. Like that's why guys are stupid. Not guys, but roasters are stupid. Why do a joke that they said they wouldn't put on the air? You're wasting your time. These idiots waste a lot of time. So I wrote one where I said, Tommy Lee and Pam Anderson, what a great couple. When they got married, they got registered at Bed Bath and Beyond in the Center for Disease Control. (laughs) I got that joke out of it, and I was like, I'll just do it in comedy. So I would go and say, Hey, here's what I didn't say, you know, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that was hers. And I don't blame her. I mean, she has kids. It was sensitive. And also I felt for her. She took too much abuse that night. So if you notice, I wish you guys could have seen the whole roast unedited. I said maybe one joke about her and everything else was getting everybody back for how low they hit with her. They punched down. And I was like, oh, and you're little cunts. Here we go. And all of them got the wrath of me. I was so, and I wasn't back then all pro women and oh my God. But I was like, come on. Really? 8,000 jokes about her vagina being stretched out? Like, try. Like, just try. Yeah. Yeah. If you probably look back at that rose now and see a lot of those guys hitting on it, like beating her up, it probably looks bad. Like, the optics probably look bad right now if you look at it. And by the way, Two of them got cut completely out of the roast. And I'm like, hey. Who was that? Well, if you see the, you'll watch the roast and you'll be able to see because they do like screenshots of everybody and you'll notice two don't even go up. Uh, Is it because they bomb or because what they said? I, I think it was just they weren't that good and they needed to cut for time, but they did cut the ones that were most evil. Can So can I ask, and so... Because people forget, I, I think people don't like underestimate like that you have to sit up there the entire time oh, and have people make fun. Yeah. So is it? You, do you have thick skin or, or no? No, 
I offstage, I have the world's thinnest skin. I get my feelings hurt all the time. Like I probably did twice today, but I, you know, work through it, you know? Um, but I think, so I'm super sensitive and I just stuffed that down with comedy all those years and achievement and whatever you do to fill your life in a non-meaningful way. But on the stage, I was like, well, it's part of the job. Stuff is going to hurt if it's lazy. Because again, the good jokes like Artie Lang saying, oh my God, I love this. When he was in his most horrible shape, the poor thing, when he was still addicted and he was gray and enormously big. And he said, if I had a nickel for every time somebody say, hey, aren't you Lisa Lampanelli? I mean, that's like literally, (laughs) I put that in my book. Like that's like the funniest joke. So you like good jokes about you. It's the lazy throwaways, like really? It's almost like you're dishonored because it's like, I want my obituary to be written by somebody who tries. Like, don't just put who my fucking nieces and nephews' names. Fucking scare up some shit about me for real. So mm-hmm. it those didn't hurt. It was the lazy ones. And you know what I love too? Jim Norton. Oh, my God. We did the uh, Gene Simmons roast together, which, by the way, is definitely one of the best roasts I've ever been on. It's the most viewed. It was on Gene's show, The Odd Family Jewels. Jim Norton, I looked at him and I said, ugh, and I named, I go, look at this dais, ugh, they're so ugly. And I named the ugly people, like three of them for timing wise. And then I go, you know, dais is ugly when they invite Jim Norton as eye candy. <laughs> well, it's a fucking great joke. But Jim Norton emails me like five years later. He goes, dude, do I have your permission to use that in my book as the funniest joke ever said about me? I'm like, fuck yeah. So see, good comics don't mind a good joke. Yeah. But you do know you have to have thicker skin when you're up there. And again, you do. I My trick was to watch the teleprompter, know it's coming, sit up, tits out with the lists. <laughs> And you're like, and you laugh and everybody just emails at the end of the night going, you are such a good sport. That is that's, 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 funny. that's kind of brilliant. So you weren't like blindsided. You just knew everything was going to happen. Wow. Yeah, most guys did a teleprompter. I used to do paper a lot, but then by the last few, I used teleprompter because it's so cool. It's just so much more fun. Did you oh, ever my. do a roast where you felt bad? Like after you had like, where you insulted someone so badly that you were like, oh fuck, that was too far. I cut out jokes because I knew it would be going too far. Like, um, I don't even think it's that bad. It's a great joke, but looking back on it, I'm glad I didn't say it. I think I said to Jerry Lewis that we roasted him at the Friars Club, and it was the best day as you've ever seen. It's Jerry Lewis, Scorsese, Sandra Bernhardt, De Niro, every soprano, every fucking guy from all those big mob movies. I mean, it was badass, right? Plus every comic and all that and all Scorsese's bitches. And so I was like, I think I was going to say to Jerry Lewis, don't worry, Jerry. It's almost over. I don't mean the roast. (laughs) No, I love that as an insult just for an old person in the audience or whatever. And I didn't say it. And I'm glad because he had a heart attack the next day and almost died. Oh, wow. wow. I would have probably been like, that wasn't nice. But I cut out, again, I cut out a lot because of Pam, because I felt like she was very uncomfortable, but wasn't showing it. And we all know the look of the woman who feels hurt, but is smiling, that uncomfortable smile. I'm like, oh, when Tommy Lee's looking at her going, are you okay? Mm. And she's like, um, yeah. 
I'm like, oh, bitch, don't worry. I got you. And that felt fucking good. And, and people always had that protector vibe. Like Eric knows I used to hang around with a lot of open micers and like be protective of people and be like, you got to see this one at the club. You got to do or and defend them to if comics were mean to them. So I for good and for bad, I have way too much mama bear shit about me. But it came out for good at that roast. I was glad. That's in hindsight, I think that that was a great move, you know, because you probably look if you had come out hard, you probably would have felt bad years later, you know, or maybe. The, yeah. And, you know, these uh, I went pretty hard on Hulk Hogan during one of the roasts. And I said something about, I mean, horrifying shit, like about his wife cheating with the kid and all yeah. that. And Hulk goes up to Jimmy, my ex-husband, and goes, oh, brother. Your old lady, she's tough. <laughs> but, you know, they, they know what they're in for. So I would always, though, if somebody ever had, like, if I got an email right now from Hulk Hogan saying that really hurt my feelings, I'd apologize. Yeah. But he's a wrestler. He knows what it's, everything's, his world is fake anyway. Yeah, I just think if anybody, like I said, when I retired, when I was on Howard's show and Wendy Williams, I was like, if I hurt somebody and they say it calmly to me, I always apologize. Mm -hmm. You know, a group well, can't come up to you, so I don't ever do a blanket. Like, I should never have said the S word. You know, it's like, no, I have a lot of Latinx people email me and go, you were great. So, but if I hurt you, I truly apologize. Why not? I, I have a question right now. A little change the subject a little bit. So I was telling people I ran into you the other day and the comics were like, oh, is she, where is she performing? I'm like, no, she retired. And some of the comics are like, I don't understand. I like, know they don't get that you're allowed to stop. Yeah. I'm like, she's just not I'm like newer comics. Like how no one would ever retire from comedy. It's the greatest thing ever. But I'm like, Ugh. yeah, like do it for a while. You'll see how you feel. Kill me. But you miss it at all or you got to miss it a little bit. No, I'll tell you the exact formula to not missing anything. Be ready when you do it. So in other words, you don't retire from comedy unless you know that's right for you. You don't sell a house till you're ready. Like you don't do things knee jerk. You plan and you go, I'll know the moment. So I was in, I don't travel. I hate travel. Every Wednesday I was like, oh my God, I got to fucking pack. And oh, I got to go away. Oh my God. I got to be in three airports and three cities in three days. My life fucking sucks. So you start to notice and you go, well, I don't like this anymore. And nobody's ever going to question like a secretary who retires after 30 years. <laughs> you know, it's like she probably like typing, but after a while, the commute sucks. So the businessman, the goal is retirement, you know? So I just started to notice I didn't have that same joy from those first 20 years. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, but I'm going to wait till I really know I won't miss it. So, um, that's when I booked the Stern thing and was lucky enough that he said, yeah, come on and do like your final roast and we'll do an announcement. But I wanted it to be taken seriously, which he did opposed to going on some random show that they wouldn't get it because he's very into talking deep shit about changing your life and changing your, you know, do you need to be in the spotlight anymore? So I didn't miss any of it other than the first two years were a struggle with what's my identity and then I figured out I don't need one. I'm just me. So this past year has been like, oh my God, it's okay to just be a human. Which, which is, is I and I think that's what a lot of comedians struggle with, with is why they never stop it. Is yeah, th that's the main thing, is like who am I now without this? So 
And they don't even risk it because you can be truly happy. What's wild though, it does take time. It has to be, there has to be grief around it and felt sadness. And it has to be feeling all the feelings of loss of like, wow, I'm not that person anymore. Wow. I don't go into stop and shop and go, Hey, cunt, where's the baloney? Like, I mean, I do, but they probably wouldn't. So, uh, but I, you know, it's not missing any of it. Like, it's so cool. I read this great post the other day and she said something like, how great is it to be not chasing anything and not running from anything? And like comedy is chasing something and running from something at the same time. You're running from your feelings, unless you're a comic who talks a lot about feelings, which thank God that's more acceptable now. And I'm, you're not chasing anything. Like, I, I think it's more, and it seems more unusual with someone like you because people who like have a lot of success at it usually yeah. never stop. So, I which I don't get it because people retire all the time. But right. even I was reading a book about retirement success, like doing it successfully without freaking out. And it's really about getting your head around that, oh, I'm just me and I can take these three years to adjust and make mistakes. Like I've made mistakes the last three years and done missteps of like doing too much, then too little, Mm. now getting into balance, you know? And I'm like, wow, I don't have to do anything showy anymore, anything aspirational. I don't have to own things I don't want because people can come in the house and say, oh my God, that's expensive. Like literally like everything is just you, you, it's the trick is wanting what you have. Like, you, literally, you, I want this phone and this badass Cobra Kai phone case. No, like you have to not be, oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. I want that Ford Bronco. And I want that. And I want that. And I want that. No, you don't. That's just you medicating that you hate yourself. I feel like you might have, you, maybe I'm guessing that you had a good pandemic because you weren't really like feeling like you missed anything. It's fantastic. It was bad in the fact that my mom died. But other than that, no, she didn't have COVID. But what was great was that it helped me get rid of friends I didn't like. I'm like, why am I like have dinner written down in my book, dinner with so-and-so if I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ, fucking kill me. You're like, no more dinners with Eric. Oh, Eric is a cunt. But yeah, it helped me cross out what wasn't important. But that's still hard. It's an adjustment. It's going, wow, there's a there's a lack of those two people. Oh well, like you feel it and then move on. Problem is people don't feel it and then replace it with other things. It's like getting more never helps, less always helps. So me getting rid of, say, 50 items in my house today. If you said right now, he goes, get rid of 50 things, my life's gonna be better because I'll know why I got rid of them to make my life fuller and have more space for the good stuff to come in. Well, if you're just hoarding and taking, getting more bags and shoes and houses, and one at one point we had four places to live. Who the fuck? We don't even have kids. <laughs> like why? To get away from each other, you know? And me and Jimmy are still friends, but you don't need four places. That's literally stupid. At least so you, you know how many houses you have. Like some rich people, they ask how many houses you have. Remember John McCain years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Like how many houses do you have? Like, I'm not, I don't know. That's not a good way to answer that question. Like I get why some people do it. Yes. Vacation. That's fine. But boy, when you say less is more, that is huge. And I love being the person who goes, if I never 
was allowed to buy anything again. I, other than food and dog food, I honestly don't think I need anything. Did you have some kind of breakthrough in your, in the last, like the years before you retired that made yeah. you start yeah. thinking that way? What was it? You were reading some kind of. Well, when my dad passed away and I started going, wow, I really, you know, I was still doing comedy, but I was like cutting down a lot. And I was like, I miss taking care of my dad. I have to do some kind of service. So I started like, you know, writing a play about food issues because I was like, oh, that'll help people. And I just liked doing more for other people. Not in that, like I'm a volunteer way because until last week I've never volunteered. And I actually do like it because I'm ready. Again, I did it when I was ready. So now I want to go back tomorrow. But like, dude, like I just started noticing that the stuff wasn't bringing me happiness. I'd look at the furniture or the you know, bags and the shoes and the crazy schedule and go, but that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I noticed just getting rid of stuff and working on myself with the right shrink and working on what that stuff had filled in me that it really didn't fill anything. It didn't, nothing ever really fills you up other than self-love, compassion and service. And I'm not miss volunteer of the fucking year. But there's something kind of nice about once a week going someplace and seeing a bunch of people and going, holy shit, am I lucky? So I, but again, 60 years old, finally f- starting to figure it out. Do, do these people recognize you and stuff? They must, right? Weird is, dude. None of the people coming in, it's like a food bank and like I like wrap up food and like I have fun with that because when those little kids come up, it's so cute because I'm like, okay, do you want cherries or strawberries? And they go both and I go, well, I'm not supposed to. Don't get me fired. And I give them both, but it's super cute. I got recognized by the goddamn staff, but what's wild. I wasn't mad about it because that's their, that's fine. But they were afraid to ask me for pictures. They were like, is that okay? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. I don't care. And I go, just don't post them. I don't want people knowing I'm doing this, but um, I don't mind getting recognized, but I don't mind not getting recognized. I kind of wish I was recognized sometimes when it's a long line and I would really love to skip that line. But I'm like, um, you're just a nobody like everybody else. Like, <laughs> stop it. Miss fucking white devil entitled bitch. <laughs> Did you ever so because you had the experience of like you, you know, which is interesting where you you kind of got everything you wanted. So was that kind of a wake up where you're where you you have everything and then you're still you not happy? Yeah, you don't want it. Like, do I want those Gucci shoes? Do I want that bag? No, I'd end up giving so much away. I remember you left when all this was happening, like all this transformation and stuff. I had had, okay, this is so ridiculous. I had had nine carat diamond earrings made. Like, think about that. Wow. Fuck. (laughs) Well, I'm smart enough. I have a great stylist who goes to the jewelry district and she really talks them down, but it was really, really expensive. But I wanted those. Well, I start going, I have not worn these fucking things in 20 years. And my sister comes over and they're not broke or anything. They're, they're fine. But I noticed she had big diamond earrings on that were fake and they looked really good on her. And For her next birthday, I just go, I want you to have these. And she just starts crying and everything. And I'm like, wow, this is not a, hey, give away everything you like thing. It's going, it didn't make me happy. So why shouldn't I give it to somebody who get a kick out of it? I love that stuff. So I think you get it. You realize it doesn't fill the hole and you go, oh, 
okay, I guess it's not material possessions. I guess it's not Radio City, Carnegie Hall. I guess it's no TV credits. What is it? Oh, it's connecting to other people. And that's mm-hmm. the only thing that really seems to do it for me, at least. And did you have that moment where you're doing things like Radio City where you were like, oh, this is the pinnacle. Why am I not? Why well, am I not enjoying? Two, that's great. Because two things happened Radio City Night that made me realize that comedy for me didn't mean that much. Um, the only things, if you say what's your best memory Radio City, I'm not even lying to you. I had dinner with my parents and my nieces and nephews across the street. And I have pictures from that still. And it was the most fun. I remember the dinner. I don't remember shit about the show. Who cares? And the other thing about Radio City was that was a wake up call was it was sold out. I go backstage after the set. I had a lot of fun, but I go backstage and the promoter, the head of Live Nation, and he didn't mean any harm. He just goes, oh, my God, because, you know, when you do Radio City, you just get so many flowers and telegrams and all this bullshit. Telegrams, a telex. What am I, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I know what it's like when you do Radio City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, hot diggity doo. <laughs> so he says to me, oh, my God, this was a huge success and hugs me and goes, next, Madison Square Garden. And the thing, I just went like this, not outwardly. I'm like, oh, I sat in that dressing room and go, still not enough. And, of course, mm-hmm. I put that on him. And I'm thinking, still not enough for you. And then I'm like, oh, still not enough for me. And I'm like, no, like things have to change because that had to be enough. A fucking anything we do is enough. Look at today. I went to the dietitian because, you know, I've kept the weight off many years. I want to keep on point. I went to the, my little faggoty ballroom dancing class. And yes, I still say faggoty, so suck it. And I did two podcasts and they're both hmm. friends and there's, I didn't look at how many downloads I reviewed. I don't care. They're friends. Let's do it. That to so, me is, a well, yeah. this is the it's biggest both- podcast in the world. So. <laughs> ever existed. Yeah. But that but- all filled the, the, the soul and the connection thing I need versus this big overblown thing. So you're never, you're never going to buy a rocket ship in the shape of a dick. Fly in outer space. You don't you always say to yourself, those are the most damaged people. Like I heard <laughs> on a podcast recently, like, thank God there's such damaged people like that, or we wouldn't have the Amazons and the fucking Branson. Those people are mentally fucking <laughs> unstable. Like they were probably hit a lot as kids. And I'm like, I said, probably so no one can sue me. But you have to have a certain kind of damage to be that motivated. So I like, thank God that's not me. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I know you get this question a lot. We'll just speed through it real quick. Okay. Um, about woke comedy and wokeness. I mean, do you have any comments? I'm sure people have asked you about this a lot, I would imagine, lately. Well, I have probably an unpopular view because I call myself the world's oldest millennial because I really do feel like I get millennials a lot. I really think they get it. And there's a lot of hope for the future because of people between the ages right now of 13 and 30. So that maybe that's not millennial, but it's like that. Yeah, they're going to get things done. Um, So I do understand why people get hurt and upset and why, you know, talking about mental health is so important and why not using certain words is really important. And yes, do we say faggoty on the podcast? Yes, because I have enough gay listeners that I'm grandfathered into, (laughs) you know, saying that. But again, 
if somebody comes up to me and says, that hurt my feelings, you made me feel bad, I say, I'm sorry. And I mean it because I'll probably cry because I don't want to hurt your feelings. So I think it's easy to be like, hey, man, I don't handle myself. I'm such a fucking bro. Yeah. Yeah. What do you want? What are you doing? Like, what is your life going to add up to, stupid? Like, oh, you laughed when the guy talked about um, sexually abusing the girls on your fucking enormous podcast. Wow, you're really fucking got a lot to be proud of. And I'm like, those guys, those bro-y assholes who think comedy's the king, guess what? Mm-hmm. It's not. Guess what? At the end of your life, you're left with what you did wrong and how you need to apologize and how you fucked with people's lives and how you laughed at the rape story. You know, rape joke is one thing. I've mm-hmm. done them. AIDS jokes. AIDS, the best diet ever. You drop, drop a quick 70. You know, we all do outrageous jokes for a reason. But the the evil shit, I don't know. It's not so cute. But that I'm going to pick comedy as the hill to die on. That's what it, it was always the hill to die on thing um, that was very like that you're going to go to bat your whole life for rape jokes was like. Yeah. Enjoy your fucking terrible life because your wife hates you and she's fucking the black guy. Just <laughs> And it is very, it's very indicative now, like with the gymnast who just dropped out of the Olympics because yeah. um, she oh, was yeah. like. I don't want to, I don't mentally feel like this yeah. is good for me, as opposed to like the Carrie Strug era where it was like, hey, your foot's broken, like still do it. Like, what's your problem? Well, we do forget that she actually won the Olympics with a broken foot. She, you know, was spoke out against that sexual abuser fucking asshole. And like, it's weird, man, with this mental health stuff. I'm so happy that age group talks about it, but anyone who's going after her, Okay, first of all, I'm I'm sorry, man. I'm overly woke. Bill Maher would say I'm overly woke. If she was white, she would not be getting any shit about this. Yeah, oh, that's a great that's point. So good for her. It'd be some fucking white bitch Karen's going. Yeah, she needs to per. No, we put undue pressure on black athletes, male and female. So I'm proud of her. I think she's a badass. And like, I will cobra kai a motherfucker if they fucking go after her that's how i am eric i stick up for people <laughs> she's also a sexual assault victim she remember, is remember she spoke up against him in court and not, yeah but that's enough to make you go i'm a hero already right i mean these little bitches well, you know and uh, also who even wants to compete in this olympics it's a fucking nightmare horrible, horrible. i mean it's like everyone has covid no one's watching it. It's like just, just skip this time around. They just should have yeah. skipped this one. I know. I'm not even watching because of like my mental health. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think the mental health story is really so new to anyone of my generation that they're like, oh, you should just suck it up. Oh, yeah, and then commit suicide. That yeah. that that solve a lot. So I just and again, it's all the Karens out there my age. I hate my fucking age group. None of my friends are my age. Everyone <laughs> of my friends is like 30 to 40 or under. And I'm like, oh, you're allowed to talk about the medication you take. You're allowed to talk about your suicide attempt. That's why I like the podcast, Shameless Plug Losers with a Dream with Lisa Lampanelli, available everywhere, because those guys are could have gone the bro-y direction because right. they're masculine, but it's all that mental health stuff and that fucking addiction and the 12-step stuff. That's deep stuff that people have to talk about at that age. You know, my age group is fucking lost. They're a bunch of jerk offs who put on Woodstock '99 and had 87 fucking rapes. Stop with the Woodstock. Did you watch that 
documentary. Yes. We were talking about before you jumped on. No, were you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Dude, I knew I was going to be haunted by it, but I said, I have to watch it. I watched it last night. And Fred Durst had actually, before I knew anything about Woodstock or that band, he had reached out to me about 12 years ago and said, can you write a roast of me? And I'm going to play it under the tracks of one of my songs. Mm. And I'm like, sounds fun. Yeah. I wouldn't have done that if I knew what a scoundrel he was. But anyway, um, was that the most haunting documentary? And I loved at the end where that woman said for Spin Magazine, like maybe you as fucking old assholes, boomers, get out of the way and not make us relive the shit that you lived in the 60s. Right. Telling us like that generation, like you guys need like what we had. Um, I I think it's amazing because, you know, it's one of those things at the time I remember it, but looking at it now with so much time gone by, it's kind of like, wow, that that time period was such a like Columbine had just happened, you know, and that was at a time if you think of like, when Columbine happened, that was such a huge deal. Like you knew the names of the shooters and the school. Now I couldn't even tell you schools that were that. So like, yeah, we were saying before all those kids who went there are probably proud boys right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. They had a nice little fucking gateway to fucking proud boy and raping and everything. Let me tell you something. Here's where my generation is fucked up. Oh God we'd be the age group that would see the girls with the tits out and say it's her fault. Definitely. Mm. So I have to fight that every day because I'm watching it going, cause I'm so fucking modest. You know, I always dress really conservative and I just, I would never, I would talk about sex in a funny way, but not a graphic way. I never would talk about any physical blowing or whatever. I mean, I talk about a funny, but not gross. Mm. So part of me, I have to fight that. Um, but if you get molested at Woodstock with your tits out, like whose fault is it? And I'm like, no, it's fucking the guy's fault. Like you should be able to control yourself. So my generation doesn't think it through and then just blames the fucking victim, which is why my generation's probably looking at Simone Biles and going, suck it up, bitch. You knew you what you were getting into. And that's just their childhood trauma of being told to suck it up. Mm. So again, we're all just that expression, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. But a lot of hurt people have to fucking just be arrested and then be raped in jail. That's and me. even the guy who, who was in the dock, who I guess is one of the organizers, said that specifically. Ugh. Like it was the women who shouldn't have been walking around naked. John yet. Shear. Let it be said that John Shear is such a fucking enormous piece of garbage. And the things he was saying, even in the press conference, when he was being all belligerent to the press people. Guys, watch this documentary. HBO Max really needs your business. As <laughs> no, but it's a good doc. You know what's on them? How do you fuck up Woodstock? That's a slam dunk. And they fucked like it. Like said, 94 yeah. was fine. And then uh, the funniest part I thought was the only funny part was when they said Andy Dick did a horrendous set. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was so happy. So like Andy Dick has always been a double-edged sword with me. He was always nice-ish to me. But then at the roast, he was a little bitch. So wow. one of my favorite jokes about him was Andy Dick is so gay. His chapstick is cock flavored. <laughs> so I mean, Andy Dick, I was happy to hear bombed once again. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, All right. We should wrap this up. We don't want to keep you. Um, thank you man. This was great. This I got to awesome. say though, you're, you're so much meaner in person. Horrible. <laughs> Disgusting. I'm like Bob Newhart. <laughs> 
Uh, thanks so much for doing. Yeah, this is like this has been like amazing. I, it's yeah. been like very fascinating and uh, an honor to talk to you. Yeah, and if you if you ever want to do it again, if you're bored, we'll be here. It'll be like Zoom therapy, whatever you need. Yeah, hey, once a month I'm going to come on and read you the Riot Act. I think that's the way to go. So give me one last shameless plug: uh, Losers with the Dream podcast, starring Lisa Lampanelli, Bo McDowell, and Nick Scopoletti bunch of fucking italian big mouths and bows and irish donkey and it's uh for for men or women who want to talk about deep issues but in a funny way subscribe rate review and suck a dick <laughs> well said <laughs> all right that's it Mwah. thank you you guys thank thanks. you thanks again